0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the June edition of DataBytes: Getting Things Done with Data in Government, hosted by the Institute for Government, and kindly supported this month by SAP. I'm Gavin Freegard, Program Director for Data and Digital Government at the Institute, live from DataBytes Mission Control. Thank you all for joining us. Now, this is our eleventh DataBytes event and our third online-only one. So, as is now traditional, hands up if this is your first DataBytes. Excellent. The first of many, I hope. And hands up if you've been before. Welcome back. We must be doing something right. Hang on. You didn't put your hand up, did you? Yes, you. Let's try that again, shall we? Hands up if you've been before. Good. And hands up if this is your first time. Better. Now, for the avoidance of doubt, obviously, I can't actually see you and I'm just sat here in my suit talking to a laptop, which is perfectly normal behaviour. Let's start with some housekeeping as ever while I just share my screen. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. If you would like to join in the conversation on Twitter, the hashtag is IFGdatabytes, and you can follow us live tweeting at IFGEvents. And I will be putting your questions to all our presenters tonight. You can ask those questions in three ways, via the hashtag, IFGdatabytes, via Slido, that's bit.ly slash 11 or via the chat on this live stream broadcast. Now, we may have some new faces tonight, so a quick reminder of what Databytes is and why we do it. Data means many different things across government. We want to bring um, those different data communities together. We also want to talk to people beyond the data and digital communities in and around government and show what better data can mean for them. And we spend a fair, bit of, a fair bit of our time at the Institute moaning about how government data could be better. We wanted to highlight and celebrate a lot of the good things that are going on as well, and help others to look at, listen to, and learn from them. That's the why, now the what. Tonight, you're going to see four presentations on data-related projects. Uh, Each of our speakers or set of speakers will have eight minutes to present. Yes, eight minutes. You will see our infamous timer on the screen. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. That will then be followed by eight minutes of questions to our speaker. Yes, eight minutes again, so that timer again. And then we'll move on to the next speaker. So eight minutes presenting, eight minutes of questions, and we do that four times. A nibble of bytes for those of you that speak binary. As I said, this is our 11th event in the series. You can watch the previous ones by going to the link on the screen. Not this minute, obviously. Uh, that's Tom, Eleanor, Glenn, and Terence from last month's event. Uh, that link will also take you to our report on the first eight DataBytes events. One presentation to particularly recommend this month is from Data 8, where Marcus Bell from the Cabinet Office Race Disparity Unit talked about how data transparency can be a good way of tackling inequality. Well worth your time, given events at the moment. Now, those of you that have been before will know that I usually have a look at the last month in politics and government in charts. And it's been a busy month for charts, if more the I variety than the pie variety. I should be clear, of course, what you can see on the screen doesn't constitute government advice, only a very poor attempt at a visual gag. Now, as if that whole episode wasn't simultaneously ridiculous and serious enough, yesterday our parliament voted itself back a few centuries as the government made those MPs that were able to turn up queue for the best part of an hour to disenfranchise those that couldn't. It's been suggested today that the government might row back on some of that, but it was reported in advance that the arrangements could lead to a queue around a kilometre long. So let's put that in perspective with some data. You can see a kilometre there on screen. Now, when it comes to comparisons of area, one of the recognised standard units is the size of Wales. So let's compare it to the longest railway station sign in Wales. That's which is six metres long. So that one kilometre queue of MPs is equivalent to 167 of those. Yes, 167. Another standard unit of measurement is of course, the London bus, the new route, the new route master is 11.23 metres. So that one kilometre queue of MPs is equivalent to 89 London buses. Or let's take the Elizabeth Tower, which houses Big Ben. That's 96 metres. So the one kilometre queue of MPs is equivalent to ten and a half big bends. Or let's take Whitehall, the actual street with government departments on it that runs from Trafalgar Square to Parliament. That's 644 metres. So the one kilometre queue of MPs is equivalent to one and a half Whitehalls. I suppose on the plus side, it's only a sixth of a lap of the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit, the third longest track on the Formula One calendar, a sixth of Silverstone or... If you prefer, one 418th of a 260 mile drive from London to Durham. So all of that makes this the maddest parliament since, well, the last two. This month, the Institute published our latest parliamentary monitor report, packed full of chart-tastic analysis of the long 2017 to 19 and short 2019 parliaments. You can find that on our website, where you can also read our new explainer on how the government is planning to use our personal data to tackle coronavirus, contact tracing, and much more besides. And it wouldn't be data bytes without a ministerial resignation chart. Correlation, not causation, honest. Last week, Douglas Ross became the sixth minister to resign outside a reshuffle under Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But enough of comings and goings. Let's introduce tonight's fantastic lineup. First up, we'll be hearing from Rachel Sang and Katrina Fraser from Gov.UK, they'll be talking about uh, coronavirus and how that's accelerated some of the work that they're already planning to do. Then we'll hear from Sean O'Callaghan from our sponsors for the evening, SAP, he'll be talking about infant mortality in Indiana, data driven government in action. After that, we'll hear from Natalie Record at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, or Mahoka Logo for short, as we're determined to try to get to stick. She'll be talking about how data can transform housing and planning. And finally, we'll be hearing from Andy Halliwell from Government Shared Services, talking about their critical role before, during and after coronavirus and uh, looking at all of that through a data lens. Got another date for your diaries already. The next Data Bytes will be on Wednesday, the 1st of July, uh, supported by ADR UK. Fantastic lineup already taking shape there. Uh, We will be doing virtual drinks afterwards. uh, So please do join us uh, after this event on bit.ly slash DB11drinks using the password ifgdb11. Another big thank you to SAP for supporting us this evening. We really do rely on sponsors to keep the series going. And if you would be interested in supporting a future event, please do email my colleague, pratesh.mystery at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And if you would like to pitch a presentation or know somebody who should be presenting, drop me an email on gavin.freeguard at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And with a few seconds remaining, first time for everything, me not overrunning. I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And we will hand over to our first presenters. Um, so it's Rachel and Kat from uh, gov.uk. And I think we're going to see Rachel first.
1: Great. Thanks very much for that, Gavin. Hold on, I'm just going to present my screen.
2: Great, hello. Um,
1: So my name's Rachel Dunn and along with Kat Fraser, we're gonna be talking to you through some of the things that we've been doing recently on gov.uk, particularly in response to coronavirus. Um, We'll set that out against the wider context of our broader strategy and and really kind of, I think the key thing that we wanna talk you through is really how the recent work that we've been doing has actually enabled us to accelerate that strategy. So I suppose a couple things that we wanna kind of just take you through, just to take you back to the beginning of that story. Um, Hopefully you've seen this before. This is gov.uk. So back in 2011, there were almost 2,000 government websites. And that meant that it was really difficult, actually, to find what you needed to find if you didn't actually know the structure of government. So gov.uk was created so that people didn't need to understand the structure of government in order to interact with it. In so doing, we brought together information and services from 25 departments, and almost 400 government organisations. So every week, millions of people come to Gov.UK. They do complex and sometimes even life changing tasks. Things like applying for your first provisional driving licence, things like preparing for the end of the transition period, or even reporting found treasure. I suppose we think that describing Gov.UK as just a website and publishing platform is a bit reductive. So I think our value proposition is really that we've become a trusted brand for government. We're the canonical source of truth for government information and services. You'll often hear ministers for the cabinet office say that the ambition for digital government is to transform the relationship between people and the state. And GovUK is actually where that relationship really happens. It's literally the interface between people and the state. So in this regard, we serve a dual role. We help people understand government. So that they don't need to understand how government works and what department is responsible for what in order to interact with it we help people self-serve and that reduces the need for things like call centers but we also help government understand people so we're incredibly proud of what we've delivered over the past nine years we've come a really long way and i think we've continued to iterate and improve we've always said that gov.uk will never be finished At the same time, though, we know that user expectations have changed significantly. If you think about services and and products that have become just really standard in everyday life. So, you know, the way in which you'll just really naturally do a Google search for something, the way you do your, your banking with Monzo or use CityMapper just to find out how to get from A to B. Those services have changed user expectations about what they can do online. People want things to be quick. They want things to be easy. They want things to be secure. But most importantly, they want things to be personalised. And I suppose for Gov.uk, we think that really we shouldn't be any different, should we? But I think in order to understand what this means for Gov.uk, you need to understand the wider structure of how we operate. So within GDS, we operate the central publishing platform and some services. However, most content and the vast majority of services are run by individual government departments. So if we take an example DWP work, runs apply for universal credit. We've joined things up in a single website, but fundamentally the structure of online services reflects the existing structures of government. And this structure, I suppose, it makes it difficult to support complex interactions or or things interactions where you need to re- interact with multiple government departments. So suppose if you take an example, you know starting a business or or having a baby. I think we also see that this is at odds with addressing the key cross-cutting government priorities of the day. So, you know, just think recently about Brexit or um, getting to the end of the transition period or coronavirus. So I think we've made lots of progress in joining things up, but there's really a limit to the extent that we can do this without wider infrastructural changes like data exchange, account management, and macro service analysis. So... This architecture also means that it's difficult for government to monitor overall performance. If you think about the average um, interaction that someone might have on GOV.UK, that might cut across multiple organisations, services and touch points. And given the structure that I just outlined on the previous slide, that means it's really difficult for government to monitor whether it's providing the optimal experience for users. So given that GOV.UK is the online interface between people and government. This also has really big implications for how we do policymaking more generally, because if you have the end-to-end view of online user journeys, so going back to the example of starting a business or having a baby, you can begin to spot correlations. You can start to identify cohorts, and you can even anticipate issues before they become problems. So we think that this isn't just about gov.uk, this is about overall how we develop policy across government. I'm going to hand over to my colleague Kat now to talk you through wider strategy.
3: So last year we set out a strategy for GOV.UK and the strategy builds on what GOV.UK has always done which is to make things easier for users. We want GOV.UK to be personalized, to give users the option to interact with a more curated product that meets and anticipates their needs. We want it to be low friction, to join up complex information and services beneath the surface and make it easier for users to get things right from the start. And data informed, to make full use of the power of data to have better performance insights across government and to identify correlations and spot things before they go wrong. And underpinning all of this is an ambition for how gov.uk and government could begin to use data better. Preparing for Brexit was a big catalyst for change for gov.uk and it really reinforced the need for this strategy. Users of gov.uk needed to be able to navigate the complexity of Brexit. So we brought together content from across government and built services like the Brexit Checker, which is a tool to help users understand what Brexit means for them. We also started to enhance our data science capability and we implemented cross-domain tracking to build a view of activity across the whole of gov.uk. In short, we began to work in a different way, offering different types of content, and improving our ability to understand how users interact with government online. Recently, gov.uk has been at the center of the COVID-19 response. During the pandemic, gov.uk has repeatedly seen record demand peaking at over 132 million page views in a single week. And that's just of those who consented to analytics tracking. So the real number is likely to be significantly higher than that. Responding to COVID-19 has required a huge amount of delivery within a very short period of time, and this slide shows some of the services we've stood up during the pandemic, including for business, education and volunteering. COVID-19 has really reinforced the need for us to work across departmental boundaries to solve cross-cutting problems and to make it easier for users to navigate complex events. As with Brexit, we've continued to join up content and build services for users to make it easier for them to access support. For COVID-19, we've been collecting and using personal data to ensure that we can give the right support to the right people. For example, we're collecting details of businesses that want to offer help, and of people who are registered as clinically extremely vulnerable, often referred to as shielded, so that they can receive help. We've also been improving our data insights, providing a more holistic analysis of how users are interacting online. Our work on COVID-19 has reinforced our belief in the importance of a strategy that makes it easier for people to find the right things at the right time and for government to understand how users are interacting with us. There's obviously huge technical complexity to enabling a strategy, particularly changes to how we collect, exchange, combine and deploy data. And also complexity to ensuring that we're giving our users greater choice in how gov.uk supports them. So making sure we continue to uphold privacy by by design and give our users the option to opt out of personalisation if that's what they want. And crucially, this isn't just about gov.uk. It's a project for the whole of government, and it's really about how we can collaborate using data to improve service delivery and policy development. There's a lot more to do, and we're just getting started on the next phase of this work. We'd really love to come back and tell you more about how it's going in future. Thanks very much for listening.
0: Rachel and Kat, thank you very much um, indeed for that. We'll definitely take you up on that invitation to come back uh, once the work (laughs) is completed. And um, and Kat, welcome to a very exclusive group of people who managed to mute themselves on DataFights. I think it's you, Terence Eden from NHSX and me. So you're in very, very good company. Um, Excellent. We've got um, some very, very good questions uh, coming in already. So um, let me pose a couple that we've got from Slido. Uh, First question is, how will data.gov.uk fit into the new gov.uk?
1: Okay, perfect, thank you. Um, So yes, I think we are definitely thinking about what um, the future for data.gov.uk looks like, because um, as you'll have seen from the presentation just now, this is quite a huge ambition. Um, It's not just about how we monitor performance on gov.uk, it's about how government in general um, can monitor performance. Um, And so definitely our thinking about this wider strategy definitely includes um, data.gov.uk. I think we haven't landed on a particular model yet because a lot of that is really contingent on on the thinking that we do over the following months. But yes, definitely part of plans.
0: Excellent. Um, I've got another uh, question for you from uh, Slido. This is Jason Bradbury from Ofsted. Gov.uk has been a brilliant transformation for citizen services. But it's very limiting for dynamic visual presentation. Have you got any thoughts on how we might address that?
1: Um, I am happy to take that one again, unless Kat, if you, I don't, I don't know if you want to take that one, but I can, I can um, have a go first. And, and Kat, please do jump in. Um, so, uh, yes, I think that you know, this isn't just about data, although data is obviously at the heart of this strategy. Um, I think that going forward in terms of providing a more personalized experience for our users, we want to think also about what that means with the look and feel and and how um, content can be more dynamic. Um, and how um, people can um, you know really uh, receive contact content that is curated to their needs so yeah that is something that's very much part of this thinking um, and and I think as part of our wider strategy we have been broadening out the, the sort of the way in which um, gov.uk might traditionally
3: look Yeah, I would just add to that exactly as Rachel says and just to say, um, you know, it, it's a it's a balance to strike. Um, we're really keen to be able to offer different types of content and uh, different um, options. But also we have to be mindful of the fact that one of the one of the biggest uh, parts of Gov.uk's value proposition is, is the trust that it gives to users that they are interacting with government. And a, and a big part of that is the branding. So it's always about trying to strike the balance between um, branching out, but also being really mindful that the gov.uk branding uh, is very, is very distinctive uh, users trust it. And we need to make sure we, we keep that integrity.
0: Great. Um, We've got a couple of questions um, on personalization and opting out. So I'll take those two together. How do you deal with the large numbers of people who opt out of analytics? Does that make a change to how personalization works? And somebody asking, why must users opt out of personalization? Would they automatically be opted in?
3: So, the data sources that we're, we're talking about using for, for personalization is, is, is gov.uk data. Um, I think that, you know, so the short answer to the question is no. I think, in uh, as part of our strategy, We definitely need to think about how we make um, content and information available to people, to users, in the places that they find it. So, um, you know, for people that are finding information, for example, through Google or through Alexa, making sure that we have um, structured content with the right kind of data markup, so that people can find that content, um, and then that we're being kind of mindful of the ways in which people find uh, find our information.
0: Great, I'm going to squeeze in one very final question. Um, what problems would personalisation solve for someone having a baby, as per your example?
3: Uh, happy for you to take that one. Or, um, yeah, I was just going to say, I think at the moment that um, when it comes to these kind of um, services that we might class as kind of big life events, the way in which government works, um, is a little bit um, fragmented in terms of um, it's likely that uh, a person will have to interact with multiple different um, departments or different parts of government at one particular juncture in their life. Um, so something like having a baby or kind of the, uh, an early years type service and so the ways in which we could envisage personalization helping um, with something like that is um, Basically, joining things up for users so that a user doesn't have to interact, have to understand um, the different parts of government uh, when uh, they're interacting with government. And instead, we're bringing the information and services together to make it much easier for them at particular key moments of their life.
0: Excellent. Well, Rachel and Kat, thank you very much indeed um, for all that. There were, And sorry to those people whose questions I couldn't ask uh, since we ran out of time, but again, some other really good questions on, on Slido um, as well. Um, our next uh, speaker, our next presenter, is Sean from our um, Supporters for the Night SAP. So, uh, Sean, over to you.
4: Thank you very much, Gavin, and thanks for everything. i am to share my screen. i to kick off. Okay, um, welcome everybody. Um, my name's Shauna Callahan, and I work within our SAP Public Sector uh, practice. Mostly um, my background has always been working w- with data, um, whether it's an analyst working in Department of Works and Pensions or work- working in local government. Uh, clearly focused on, shall we say, getting the statutory returns in to make sure that we got the uh, right amount of budget for each year or, or providing all the necessary requirements to actually work out whether we're meeting all the outcomes that are specially determining. It's always been a challenge. Uh, obviously, I imagine some of you have experiences where it's either been locked in a transactional system, or how do we actually get that data and make sense of it? Has always been uh, a bit of a challenge, a bit of an issue for us. Obviously, with the tsunami of data we now have around us, how do we make sense of it? You know, what do we to do with it? And what is the so what? How can we actually change things and change lives uh, around it? What I'm going to do today is, is take you through a business outcome of a customer that actually faces issues and the journey that they took uh, and what they're actually delivering. Um, and I'll obviously, then we'll and some, some of the benefits. So the actual customer that we're talking about um, is actually the state of in Indiana. Uh, when we actually looked at this thought we, we had so many uh, different things we could talk about. But actually, when we're looking at what they actually did in practice, it actually gives a bit of a blueprint for, for maybe, you know, could, could this be right for, the, for us in the UK? And we are working with our UK customers in this container. And what lessons can we learn and use that can help make our data projects more interesting more The key thing for Indiana's perspective was they weren't actually achieving all the goals they wanted to achieve. They weren't rated in a number of statistics, the highest in the states around America. And more importantly, they weren't actually impacting people's lives. Um, and the whole kind of focal point of the Indiana capability was open government. They wanted to deliver personal services. Obviously, reducing costs, obviously, there's always bottom line. The idea of deliver value. Okay, and it's quite fundamental part of what they were trying to, to do. To actually achieve that, they realized that actually the way that they actually currently maintain and actually um, manage the data was in a way preventing them from doing the very things that they wanted to. So, how can we improve the lives of our citizens, improve the lives of our employees? Um, with our data, okay, is restricted to doing it. And what I mean by that is they had over 90 agencies that all had their own data with another and weren't willing or unable to share of issues of politics, or particularly, particularly from the issues, politics, politics, particularly some skill sets within our organization. So they needed to realise that they needed to make a massive sea change in that whole data structure. Like structure. They realised that they needed to understand a common purpose, a common goal. So the first thing they did was actually um, look at the whole process and come up with the idea of creating a data sharing culture. Okay, what he actually said was, "I need to we need to be able to understand exactly um, what data we have and in what format it has, so that we can actually allocate the right resource and add the appropriate funding to the right program." A lot of the time before this took place, it was guesswork. Uh, again, my experience was always based on, we had some understanding of the service we delivered, but we applied a bit of our own experiences or a certain process to determine a outcome. So therefore, when we were looking at our strategy, we thought, yeah, we understand that generally speaking, there might be a 10% increase in that service, but in reality, how do we know it's 10%? Or it could be even, even less. So the idea was that the whole of the management team in the state Indiana wanted to ensure that they had information in a way that that, that was across the whole state okay that they're able to use that data to make more informed decisions but also they want to get data that they didn't actually necessarily have so it's not about data retention or acquisition it's also about how to understand that other data could be used in a blended way to a complete overview so the operational data and the sentimental and um Predictive information coming kind of, kind of together as one thing. So the key fundamental around this is actually that the actual having to provide legislation to do that, and that's what maybe we have to face in our own strategies and projects we're working. On. The next part was, well, okay, we've now presented um, the capability of, of uh, the idea of, of getting together and a mandate around all that. Um, therefore. It's um, how can we create the vision and, and the mission? So obviously, as you can see here, the vision was they wanted the most effective, efficient, and transparent state in the country. They wanted to be the number one. Audition. We all have aspirations. I think we can probably translate a lot of those visions into our own world. But more importantly than that, they wanted to look at industry and how they can develop an industry-wide capabilities. So therefore, let's look outside the box let's look at it in, in, a, in, a, in a different way. And let's, let's, let's look at who, what the best solutions are out there to help support us in our vision. So a very clear uh, understanding something, our vision and mission wasn't was really important. And obviously key thing about was delivering the roadmap that we discussed earlier. As part of this was, well, actually, if we're going to collaborate, would it be great if we actually brought people together So they actually created the technology centre, a space within City Hall, which allowed them to come, discuss, collaborate and innovate. Um, We use something called design thinking, which is agile prototyping. And fundamentally, this was part of the the mantra and the DNA they put in place of understanding what our data is, what it could be, what it should be. More importantly, what is the outcome? Walking in the shoes of the people that we're actually trying to impact on. And this is really important because it's a different mindset change, and a different conversation for them to actually take into account. So clearly changing the law, creating simple vision and roadmap together with a physical space was important steps for them. Because it actually meant people were investing in it and making sure that data came to life. Really, really important. Because generally speaking, when you talk about data projects, most people see it as an onerous task that's going to get the impact on the day job. In fact, when you think about it, it should be part of your day job. It should be part of everything you do. And if we all tackle and took responsibility for the data we have, maybe you know it'll be self sufficient. Maybe you know we could get data corrected in the right way. And one of the key things they did around um, citizens was to actually say look, if you own your own data, if you make sure that your personal data is, is up to date and in the information, then um, we'll ensure that the services you request are delivered quickly and delivered to your own personalization. So therefore we can talk about. Understanding how you want your services to be delivered to you and making sure that happens, but providing you help us with the data. So I think again it, it was it's building that statement of trust, not just within the actual agencies and, and the actual um state of itself, but also with its citizens and businesses and the whole 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 environment. So this is an important part of it when when you look at um some of the revenues. And so when the chief financial officer was looking at this. The basic decision that actually I'm responsible for revenue, but I'm going to take ownership of the data. So, obviously, you can see the budgets and, and the meta, uh, megabytes that they were taking. So, therefore, it's important that we had executive sponsorship and somebody actually oversaw and monitored this information. So, a, a single stakeholder and governance model is important, aligned with everything else, all the other changes that we've made. Clearly, clearly fundamental if we're trying to deliver uh, real outcomes uh, and, and real inf- information. So when we talk about uh, data-driven outcomes, um, it's clearly that we need to look at um, a kind of a pilot or, or sort of a way of actually how do we how do we start those steps? Because it's, it's, like I say, it's a big, massive thing to chew. You can't do it in one go. You have to do it in what I call bite-sized chunks. Uh, Forgive the pun. Uh, so therefore, you're able to, to look at things that, in a way that's delivering very quick, agile drops and in information coming through. So this actually is showing the fact that infant mortality was a major problem for them. Um, they were rated the number of worst performing states in the organization. And obviously, how could they prevent it? So what they actually did by, by looking at the structure I put before, averaging 7.7 deaths per 1,000 population, they first of all were able to look at data in different ways. So before, it was Excel spreadsheets. But now I can start seeing, introducing things like risk factors. I could look at regional capabilities. I could actually look down into human factors of data and how that correlates to other factors, both social and media. So the kind of technology and then the insight gave them a lot more capability to understand what was actually happening. So the actual uh, dashboards were built and obviously consumed by various organisations to help them with their insight. But the key the key kind of statements come out before was that previously they had 92 agencies working independently. They had a 7.7% average of infant mortality and 15 data sets that needed integrated analysis. Obviously, that gave them issues around silo systems, very slow performance, and suspect based decisions. With the integration of the management um, information and hub and what we do with SAP, what we actually managed to deliver is faster outcomes, data reduction, uh, and, and, and a platform that's allowed them now to understand that the fact that actually. Uh, insight around the pre- pre-dental visits that they can actually give involvement and actually by actually going from a 50 to 20 motherhood age group which is causing most of the spikes they've now actually changed their actual findings to get down to a three percent average and now being uh, the number one state uh, in terms of managing infant mortality so actually they reduced it down to the silos and very very quickly just to sum up um, this was given a pure insight which wasn't there before they're able to target resources and finances to ensure the services are delivered in a personal way, and it's actually allowed them to build the one data set, expand to other things coming through. So I appreciate that. There's a lot to take through in uh, Thanks again for, for listening, and I'll pass over to Gavin now for the um, questions.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Sean. That was a huge amount of ground um, that you covered there. Um, Just to remind everybody, you can put your questions to Sean via hashtag IFGdatabytes on Twitter and by dropping it into the live stream chat or also by using uh, Slido, which is bit.ly slash Slido DB11. So I'm just going to see if anybody has any questions uh, already via any of those media. Otherwise, you're going to have to put up with me Uh, asking a question and nobody wants to see that. Um, Great, I know it will come shortly. So, um, Sean, you sort of talked about um, quite a lot of uh, sort of barriers and hurdles um, to sort of getting some of that work done. What would you sort of say were some of the the most challenging ones?
4: In most of my conversations, the first one is obviously an understanding what is a data and information strategy. Uh, Quite clearly... People have an understanding um of what they're trying to do, but really do you actually understand what you're trying to deliver and how you're delivering it and how data can, can actually do that. And I think you at the very beginning of your insight gavin everyone has a different view of what data is. And I think it's getting a common understanding across the organization is very, very key. But more importantly, everybody being realized that they all play a part in it is a major, major so it's a cultural understanding. And again, if you hopefully what we show from Indiana is if ill people come together and work in a pragmatic in a way, you can deliver some real outcomes.
0: Excellent. Um, just seeing if we've got any questions. Um, so another another sort of question that we, um, we ask a lot of our speakers um, to think about is, I mean, what... How will you know when all of this has succeeded? I mean, what's the kind of, I mean, again, you sort of referred to a few sort of targets and aims that you've got in mind. But what does success really look like for a project like this?
4: I think it's, it's, it's touching people's lives and creating real outcomes. I mean, we've got so many examples that we could have shown we could have spent the last few weeks. I mean, um, one example that we have is is protecting things like elephants and rhinos and, and the species involved. So, actually, in that case, we're looking at doing in South Africa, that case actually is protecting the elephant and the rhino. And the fact that through our sensors, IoT, and the data, we're actually stopped poaching and actually giving people who live there a new uh, profession and a way of earning money. That to me is what we're trying to talk with within SAP. It's more about what actually impacts on people's lives and, and environments for the good.
0: Um, you sort of referred to some other other, other projects there. How, how do you make sure that all of the lessons that you're learning from, from one project in one, one part of the world are learned across all of the other projects that you're working on? Because I know, obviously, one of those definitions of data is kind of knowledge and information management. How do you make sure that that side of it works as well as it can?
4: It's, it, it is very, very difficult, um, because obviously the first thing we want to do is make sure the stories get out there, because it's important that people understand the quality and the outputs that they're affecting. Uh, we, we also have a key key core team that we try to run regular updates for customers and people to understand. So again on, on our on our websites and we do various sessions, we update it. We we also um working with customers, we also do webinars. So we have, for example, been working an awful lot with, with central government organizations to run regular webinars to so they can understand those lessons learned, they can understand how the impacts on them. And again, if anybody wants if is interested, we're more than happy to to run those sessions where we just explain an SAP view of what we're doing, and people can then see in the context of what they're doing how they've information it. But really, really, Gavin, it's really about you know communicating that, letting our ecosystem also be part of that support, and our customers maybe basically be the front and center of that. Excellent. Um,
0: if you could have changed. I mean, obviously, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about sort of government and how it approaches data and data strategy and things like that. Um, I suppose there's a very specific question. If, if you could have changed one thing that would have made all of this easier uh, in the sort of government involved in this case, what would it be? And how does that sort of relate again to your sort of international experience? So there's sort of common uh, things that government should be doing um, better. And if there was one thing to change, what would it be?
4: Yeah, I I think the key key thing for me is is the governance model is is important. Uh, So therefore, you know, across government, I see a lot, I mean, I see cabinet office and lots of people doing some really good stuff. Um, And obviously, what we see today from GovUK, I'm going to see later on from MCLG, is really, really good. But who's joining that all together? So having a chief data officer across government would be interesting because I think that's where a lot of people are going. So one single person responsible for, for managing that data. I think I think we've got to label think GDPR is an issue, but talking to the people that are talking to people, most people are willing to share data if it's going to have a positive outcome, if it's going to deliver a better service. So I think there's much more we can do to join services up. And I thought also allowing agility and innovation. We, we've got to think about doing things in, in weeks, hours, so days and hours rather than weeks and months. Yeah, So things that all the projects we talked about are all done really within a six to 10 week, capability and that's the mindset change I think so I think there is, is a cultural thing and, an, and a govern thing is, is where we need to get to but I think we are getting there it's just a question of uh, time and effort. Yeah.
0: Excellent and um, just a reminder to everybody you can submit questions to Sean using hashtag ifg uh, ifgdatabytes uh, or also on the live stream chat or you can also use slido uh, which is bit.ly slash slido db Refresh the slider. See if we've got any more coming in there. Um, something that came up in the um, previous uh, presentation as well is sort of you know users sort of opting into things, and obviously there's been a lot of discussion at the moment about um, sort of privacy, ethics, and how people feel about their their data sort of being used. Um, how do you uh, how do you sort of approach that problem, making sure that the citizens whose whose data is involved are sort of brought on board uh, with everything?
4: Okay, so obviously, being from a German company, um, GDPR came from Germany, so so we're very used to this. Uh, this is something we've been doing for forty years. I think the key, the key, the key thing is you have to allow that. Obviously, that consent model, uh, and, and obviously that recognition of data. But the problem, is, the thing with it is, though, even though you have to be careful about the opting in and opting out, you still can capture characteristics uh, of that allows you to do some performance of predictive capability or some sort of analysis. But you're right. The, the central point is is the consent model that we have is, is to ensure that we do reflect those wishes. Uh, again, you know, basically the German track and trace stuff that we've done. It was actually in in the BBC News today. Is that you know most of the decentralized model that we've done, most people have opted in because it's a real benefit for them. So I think it's, again, it's all about you know allowing people to understand the benefits, and if they allow, if they want to opt in, obviously allowing that to take place. But the key thing is, even the people opt out, is a method to anonymize that, but still allow that to to, to, to actually make some sense of of what potentially could happen. So therefore, we're basically much more on real data rather than uh, assumed knowledge.
0: Great. Um, We've got uh, one minute uh, left, if anybody wants to submit a question. Otherwise, again, I will uh, finish with a final question. Um, If there was one thing that you learnt in this uh, project that you could impart to others uh, trying to do something similar, what would it be?
4: The one thing. I I think it's it's about understanding the size of what you're trying to deliver and and making sure you have a clear mandate. I think, to me, it's it's clarity around what you're trying to do is the most important thing and the impact that you want to make on those people's lives. Uh, I mean, obviously, again, we say about technology and partnerships and risks and stuff like that. But the key thing for me, understand understand what you're trying to do and make sure that you bring people with you as you go through it. It's probably two, actually, but it's, uh, it's it's a key thing for us. I, th- I think you can, you're you allowed to get away with the two there, I think.
0: But um, that was fantastic, yeah, Sean. Can. Thank you very much indeed.
4: My pleasure. Good evening. Thank you, everybody. Uh,
0: thank you. Um, Our next presenter is Natalie from the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. Natalie, over to you.
2: Thank you. Can you hear me?
0: We can indeed, loud and clear. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Super. Thank you. So thanks for having me tonight. Um, I'm going to talk about how data can transform housing and planning. So the, house, uh, the planning system is much broader than the submission and processing of planning applications. It's a complex ecosystem involving developers, local government, citizens and prop, um, prop techs and policy makers, seeking to find and use information to make decisions relating to the built environment. Planning is fundamental to the delivery of housing and planning processes cover all stages of the development cycle, from the identification of sites for development through to construction. Uh, planning also shapes some of our physical and psychological experiences within the built environment so that it affects us all. However, the planning system is largely inefficient today because it is based on documents rather than data Despite digitization of some parts, it is still essentially a paper-based process. This means that data is inconsistent and planning rules are locked away in PDF documents and reports. As a result, developers find it difficult to know what they can build and where, It is difficult for local planning authorities to extract the data they need to shape the delivery of new local plans and make data-driven decisions, and citizens often struggle to participate in the planning system because existing processes are complex to navigate. Here are a few examples of some planning documents and where some planning information lives. So... uh, Typically, it was uh, lots of drawings and physical uh, local plan documents. Uh, you might have seen planning notices on lamp posts explaining uh, new new proposals in your local area. Uh, we've moved a bit on from physical drawings to some just CAD and uh, 3D visualisations and CGIs. You've got uh, physical planning documents like local plans now being accessible by PDF, uh, but still no raw data there. And uh, planning notices can be sort of found online as weekly lists, um, but often also only accessible as a PDF. So how do you unlock innovation and what role can innovation play in this digital transformation? And there's an emerging and really exciting prop tech market in innovating new solutions to help overcome wider housing and planning challenges and a Plantech ecosystem forming a new marketplace of interoperable digital services. However, one of the significant barriers to the growth and scale of the prop tech sector is the existing lack of raw data. At the moment, it is taking the resource of innovative startups to mine and standardize it rather than being freed up to start to develop and scale new technologies. So data is a raw ingredient. This is a, a great drawing from my colleague Paul Downey. I thought I'd, I'd nab it for my presentation. But the big, the big challenge now is so how do you get this raw data? Out of documents, charts, maps, and reports, and get it into CSV files and GeoJSON and shapefiles so that we can start innovating new solutions. Uh, one of the main challenges is that most planning data is federated to local planning authorities. And there are over 365 local planning authorities who will record planning information in different ways and do not use common schemas or linked identifiers to record their decisions. So therefore, little planning data can be linked to a single location and a lot of data is locked behind licensing. Another, another issue is that... Uh, trusted quality data at the local level and improvements in local authority planning and efficiencies are being held back by the existing local authority planning systems, which are not fit for purpose and not linked. The same data is having to be re-entered at several different parts of the planning process because of the lack of interoperability between systems. So um, how do we move from data locked in separate local systems to shared platforms so we've been doing a bit of thinking about uh, planning as a platform and exploring and um, what th- that could look like uh, for example how do you take casework systems uh, and the data that's within them and then feed it into a trusted data platform that middle bit which would be registers and sanders and validators and what what registers would be needed for that and then um that upon that trusted data platform, you can start to have new services emerge, uh, a whole ecosystem of uh, private sector and and public sector services that can uh, provide new innovative solutions to housing and planning. So what's the role of government in this? There's definitely a significant opportunity for digital transformation central government has a critical role to play in this ecosystem through setting standards stimulating markets to improve the overall effectiveness of the planning system and addressing existing policy bar- barriers and the digital land team that's the team i'm in uh, was formed in 2018 and exists to improve access to land housing and planning data our three main user groups uh, have been local government policymakers cross government and prop tech companies. By focusing on the data needs of these three user groups, we have sought to reach the wider uh, needs of, the, of SME developers, planners, and citizens who are all the end users and beneficiaries of the new services that will be built. Um, We have used a user-centered and iterative approach to designing and testing new data standards and uh, work with cross-government partners to resolve policy barriers. It's no small task and good data standards take time to be designed, tested and implemented. But we are learning by doing and creating principles as we go. We work in the open and you can find a list of our projects and findings on our website. Um, Our sister team, the Local Digital Collaboration Unit, has also helped fund a number of digital planning transformation projects um, with innovative local planning authorities, including Southwark, Hackney, Lambeth, and the GLA. Their findings from those projects can also be found on that website. And uh, then cross-department collaborations. We work with policymakers across the building. It's really important to get in some of the data unlocked. Uh, ministerial engagement, so uh, former housing minister estimate they held this PropTech uh, roundtable with lots of uh, well, a few companies in the industry and really heard their data needs, which helped unlock some policy barriers. Communications key as well, and, and starting a wider conversation uh, with the public. And cross-government programmes, so HM Land Registry have their local land charges programme. We engage with Geospatial Commission and Ordnance uh, Survey's Geovation programme, which this picture's of, um, who support a lot of early-stage SMEs working with location data to help them scale. But significantly, what we're really excited about, you may have heard the recent Announcement from the Geospatial Commission about UPRNs uh, and USRNs, which are the unique property reference numbers and new u- unique street reference numbers, which will be opened um, under open government license in from July 2020. It's really significant because they're unique identifiers which will allow for key data sets to be linked geospatially. And um, this will form a crucial component of unlocking the digital transformation of the planning system through disparate data sets from across, because we were able to link uh, disparate data sets from across planning and housing uh, to a single location. and These linked identifiers constitute the golden thread of building information, which is at the heart of MHCLG's response to the Hackett review. Um, So, moving on, what what next? So, we are now in a position to build upon our existing work and testing that we've been carrying out for the last two years with our users. The principle of data, not documents, will form the heart of the wider digital transformation of planning, and we will continue to focus on building a trusted open data platform for land, housing and planning data, and to stimulate a market for interoperable digital planning services to emerge. This digital strategy will be further explored in the forthcoming uh, planning white paper that the Secretary of State announced, uh, which is due later this year. So a data-first approach to planning reform presents many opportunities. It will enable SME developers to find and appraise sites for redevelopment. It will enable data-driven decision-making for policymakers based upon real-time data. It will enable more strategic plan making and improve the quality of citizen engagement. It should improve the quality of placemaking, and it will allow people to find planning information in the places they're looking for it. Data is crucial to any part, any smart city or autonomous vehicle program if that was to be delivered. Uh, it, it will enable scenario modeling using artificial intelligence, machine learning, and natural language processing. But without a data-first approach, housing and planning will not be transformed. Uh, there will be continued inefficiencies in delivering housing, and it will prevent the use of new technologies from being adopted. A data-first approach will lead to better outcomes for people and places. And there's a question, will it allow for uh, genuine sustainable development for future generations? So thank you so much. Um, I'll take questions and there's my email. Uh, Please feel free to contact me afterwards if you've got any questions. Thank you.
0: Natalie, thank you very much indeed uh, for that. And uh, while your presentation goes away, just to remind everybody, you can put questions to Natalie via me, uh, via the chat on the live stream um, where you'll be watching this event, via Slido, that's bit.ly slash Slido DB11, or also using um, the hashtag IFGdatabytes on Twitter. There's plenty um, to sort of dig into there. So let me just check if we've got any questions. So far, I'm sure we're going to get a few more soon. Um, So I'll kick off um, with a first question. Um, I think one of the things that we often find when we talk about data is that it can be sometimes quite difficult to get people interested in standards and, you know, the really important fixing the plumbing work um, that you've talked quite a lot about. How have you sort of talked to stakeholders in the way that's sort of made that make sense to them, as it were?
2: Yeah. It's a good question. Um, I think so. Focusing on sort of local government stakeholders, I think uh, a lot of them understand the need for it, but there's a bit of concern about um, how how that can affect their. You know, how do you implement them, and 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 the level of work that will take for them to implement them. So I think. Um, it's been working this iterative way by starting with smaller smaller sort of problems. For example, uh, by starting with brownful land registers, which was already a data standard that existed, but it just wasn't, we didn't get very good quality data back from that. Um, It it existed pre pre our team. So we started with that part of the puzzle because um, we updated that data standard and have seen a lot of, higher quality returns from local authorities Uh, so and then building upon that message with them so showing them that um, that how much the data quality has improved then leads on to questions when you start talking about uh, developer contributions or uh, local plans etc so I think it's that iterative approach that really helps.
0: Excellent. I think um, Paul Maltby, our very first Data Bytes, presented some of the quirks of the uh, Brownfield Land Register, which uh, showed some of the Brownfield land in the sea. So <laughs> it's good to, good to hear that being talked about again. Um, what about when it comes to the sort of ministerial side of things? You talked a little bit about that in, in your presentation. And again, that sort of political leadership can be really important in helping to catalyse things. How, how, how much has that helped and how you sort of approach that side of everything?
2: yeah it's um so the recent experience with our former housing minister uh estimate Vay was was really positive so um it got her excited as a team and she saw the value of this work and then it and then uh, when when she hosted that round table with these prop tech companies it was just uh, then hearing first hand experience from the actual innovators and entrepreneurs was just really transformative and then um it could uh, see first hands sort of how how the sort of technology fitted across the department for different policy issues, um, and and really captured her attention and, and wanted to get publicity. You know, uh, the media to to run stories on it and and sort of get people excited for the potential of prop tech like fintech before. So uh, yeah, and our, our our current housing minister, we you know the, the current crisis has happened so. Um, attention has been on us all delivering new services and our team delivered the part of the shielding service with GDS colleagues but um, yeah excited to get back onto digital housing and planning when we can.
0: Excellent the questions are coming thick and fast now so I'll get through these as quickly as I can. Um, first from Ruth Dixon, um, unique address ID sound excellent will this be UK wide?
2: Yes, I believe it will definitely for England. Um, I know that the Ordnance Survey were were dealing with the uh, or other parts of the country. Um, so yeah, I believe they are UK wide.
0: Excellent. Um, one from Dan Klein. Uh, he says it's an excellent presentation. Quite right, Dan. Um, given the Land Registry has only sort of done six authorities um, to finish in twenty twenty five. How do we how do we speed all of this work up to make it useful now?
2: Yeah, something we're really thinking about at the moment. Um good question. I think I think a decision will just have to have to be made. I, we don't it is dangerous to start creating data standards really fast. So um I think that's predicament. Um but yes, watch this space. <laughs> Sorry, a terrible answer.
0: Not at all. And um, we've got a couple of questions from Jeremy Fisher. First, will the data be open or will people have to pay for it? And second, how do you handle a unique identifier to link data sets when different things may refer to different areas of land which overlap?
2: Mm. Um, so the first part of the question, sorry, I've forgotten. Um,
0: That's OK. Uh, will the data be open or will people have to pay for it?
2: oh yes so uh yeah we we work in in the open as a team and and all the data we're working on is for, to create open data we're we're building this open data platform um really passionate about that um and secondly oh i forgot the second part of the question
0: uh, the second part was, how do you handle a unique identifier to link data sets when different things may refer to different areas of land which overlap?
2: Yes, so there will be so, there, there will be limitations uh, in terms of, it, it is better than not having it but then there will be those those difficulties. It, it as, as more data sets are released with the UPRNs in and updated, then hopefully that problem will, will um, you know, it will sort of resolve itself.
0: Excellent. Loads of questions here. Um, Martin Weekly, hello, Martin, um, says there's lots of concern that the planning system is impenetrable to ordinary people. How could better data help overcome that?
2: Yeah, so i um, just been writing... Some some things about this uh, to help accessibility of local plans at this time, for example, and planning notices, and um, so better data. So at the moment, it is really hard the way that uh, information is submitted into the planning application. Um, the way it's sort of written then becomes really hard to understand for a lot of people. So, by creating data standards around how data is presented, then it should break down some of those those problems. So, uh, it should be written in a non-jargon way. You should be able to read the description of development and keep uh, pick out the the key pieces of. Um, high level planning application data that that matter to you and then essentially um de- planning information should start to appear in the places you're looking for because if for it so maybe on google etc uh, and social media platforms uh, by encouraging sort of fixed urls and data standards then data appear in in different places so um It's it's through quite small interventions, but we we really hope it will make it more understandable for for local communities and people.
0: Excellent. I'm not sure I'm going to get through all of the excellent questions that we've got. Um, So I'll try and get another one in. Um, Anonymous, this one, um, planning departments have been decimated by local government cuts. How can uh, councils who've undergone those cuts um, do all of this? Um, when they can probably barely do some of the things um, they're already trying to do.
2: I'll try and give a really fast um, answer. Um, yeah, really, uh, we're really aware of that and we don't want it to be a burden. So um, when new standards come in, uh, there is a new burdens policy that government departments have to abide by and um, give give some money towards to, to local authorities for this. Um, they're, so the, the ones that are innovating solutions like the Southwarks and the Lambeth and, the, and, and other, other authorities, uh, their, their projects are open source so that other local authorities can benefit from uh, the findings and, and, and the solutions that they're coming up with. So that should really help. But it is, it is, the cost is understood and, and that is one of the, the barriers to scale.
0: Excellent, thank you. Um, We're out of time but just to apologise to Troy Hayes who asked a very good question about whether local authorities should make their digital planning policy mapping layers available for download and to John Dixon from DEFRA who asked how the INSPIRE regulations fit with the MHCLG work. Sorry not to be able to squeeze those in, Um, but Natalie thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you, thanks.
0: Uh, And now we move on to our final presentation of the evening, um, which is Andy Halliwell from Government Shared Services. So, um, Andy, over to you.
5: Well, uh, thanks, Gavin, and uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I noticed some um, very favourable comparisons there to uh, Sheila portraits due to the uh, technical disruption. I will quickly share my screen uh, before anyone raises uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Um, so I hope people can see that um, I'm going to talk tonight about the shared services strategy for government, uh, what we've achieved and uh, where we're going, especially in relation to user experience and data and say a bit about COVID-19 along the way. So the first shared services strategy for government uh, was uh, was launched in January 18 with the three clear aims set out here, uh, delivering value and efficiency, converging around process and data and meeting end user needs. A key means of doing this included contract renegotiation and other commercial means, and the move of departmental ERP systems uh, to the cloud. Uh, And we've made quite a lot of progress uh, on that over the last couple of years. Um, As this is data bytes, a word on the data specifically, Um, we have a lot of it, over 500,000 users across the public sector, including civil servants, armed forces, and the police. Um, The financial numbers are quite enormous by any standards, um, but you'll see that that's quite a modest uh, number of individual transactions compared to, for example, what GDS talked about earlier. Obviously, that reflects the smaller number of users, five hundred thousand against the uh, the whole of the population of the uh, the UK. But also the limited scope of our core services, which is a point that I shall return to. Um, also, the case that we're building on a brownfield site here. Um, And as this picture shows, uh, there's scope to consolidate both systems and service provision, um, as well as to join up in other ways through common applications, tools and processes. Um, And uh, you'll note that only a minority of departments uh, so far uh, have uh, gained the little fluffy cloud that uh, that denotes uh, that they have moved uh, onto the cloud. Um, So what will we do next? Um, Before I get on to that, it's worth just pausing to reflect on the impact of COVID-19. My first observation would be how well shared services and shared services centres have held up um, and have been delivered um, when they have had to move from office to home locations and work remotely on both IT uh, and telephony. Um, Also, how quickly we were able to implement the necessary system changes in order to enable us to record Uh, public servants uh, COVID-19 health status and their business continuity status were they uh, key workers etc and also how it's actually enabled us to accelerate the implementation uh, of some things that we were aiming to do anyway uh, such as as live chat Um, a crisis enables us to overcome some of the uh, obstacles to putting those in place but obviously it's also affected uh, the pace of change as some of the teams uh, working on moving departments to the cloud have had to uh, turn their attention to the current crisis. Just to briefly work through the five headlines on this slide, set out the overall vision, um, and I'll end up on meeting colleagues' needs and processing data convergence, which uh, are the key uh, ends. uh, In a sense, the move to the cloud service delivery and intelligent automation are all means to those ends rather than ends in themselves. Um, plenty of people uh, on the call tonight who are uh, greater experts, technical experts than me, who all know cloud means different things to different people, um, and uh, it really is just a means to an end. Um, but it does improve uh, security, stability, mobile access, and is a platform for greater interoperability uh, as well. We've also found that we can massively improve user experience and data quality without moving systems to the cloud. We've greatly improved uh, what we can get out of our current on-premise systems. Our approach to service delivery is also an essential foundation for the other objectives. Uh, By putting in place a single framework next year in a way that drives common standards and performance improvements and in particular encourages channel shift and automation, uh, we can support better end user experience and drive our data strategy. Um, We've been using the phrase intelligent automation uh, for a while, and I think it's the one that most people use. Um, One of our major service centres, SSCL, uh, already has uh, over 30 uh, automation applications, um, and we're progressively and quite rapidly looking to automate various HR, finance and data processes. Um, So, as I say, process and data convergence and user experience are the key. Um, I'll sum them up shortly. I just want to emphasise that we do have a draft plan. Um, This is hard to take in in a few seconds here. It's available uh, online, but it is a draft and it has obviously been uh, in some ways affected by uh, COVID-19. But we might uh, take the lesson from COVID-19 that we're actually able to move further faster in some areas, too, uh, as we build on what we've learned and establish how government wants to operate in the future. Um certainly we'll see this as a five year time scale, and I think that's very realistic for what we're seeking to achieve um It's worth just taking a look at what this means in architecture terms um I can't answer too many questions on this because I am not a systems architect, and again, this slide is available online um what I want to highlight is the uh, the integration layer that I've put a circle around, which is absolutely key to uh addressing. Um, user needs and uh, our data requirements as well. Um, one of my observations about uh, how we provide shared services at the moment um, is that uh, the average public service user uh, doesn't really care if their interaction with uh, with the organisation on pensions, recruitment, security, uh, learning, or pay is being handled by one service provider or system or another. And we tend to spend too much of our time giving them a commentary on who's dealing with um, a particular issue rather than actually resolving their issue. And I think we can in in future deliver mobile, accessible, intuitive, um, integrated and indeed data-driven services that enable the individual to focus on their core task of uh, delivering public services. Um, And uh, really, that's entirely compatible with what the business needs. Uh, which is very much about the data as well as happy uh, public servants is very much around the data and our aspiration is for much nearer to real-time data on what on what resources are required both people and money um, in order to deliver better public services. Um, there are obvious and immediate use cases in relation to for example work and pensions aspects of the justice system um, and elsewhere um, where we can use the data to deploy uh the people and money we need to where it's most needed and again the current response to covid 19 um has i think highlighted that but also potentially brought it closer
0: there we go great mm. thank you very much indeed i and had a minute i had a minute a to, to
5: spare
0: i think that might be a record <laughs> Um, just a Goodness. reminder to everybody who is. <laughs> it's absolutely fine. Um, just a reminder to everybody who's watching um, that you can submit questions to Andy via hashtag IFGDatabytes on Twitter, via uh, bit.ly slash Slido DB11 or via the live stream chat. And with all the civil servants that we must have watching us, I don't believe for a second that none of you have uh, a bit of lacking questions to ask about government shared services. So please do um, put them in. Um, I'll wait for the timer to reset uh, and then we can get on to those questions. So, brilliant. So let's see if we've got any to start with, otherwise I will kick off with one. Excellent. So, um, Andy, you sort of um, on your on your slides, um, there was that sort of section looking at data and how better data would help uh, focus on delivering government priorities and services through better management information (MI). Um, what does better MI look like, and how do you get there?
5: Well, um, various dimensions to that. Um, we talk a lot in government about having a single version of the truth. Um, and that's something that I think we're getting closer to, uh, but it's still in many cases slightly elusive. So the first thing is uh, a reduction in the amount of time that people spend reconciling uh, different versions of the truth to get to the one truth that we can all agree on, um, which takes an awful amount of, uh, of, of effort. Um, the second thing I think is uh, getting that information in, as I said, in much closer to, uh, to real time. Um, we uh, have tended, um, both on financial and and, and HR management, to uh, you know look uh, look retrospectively at information, um, sometimes from uh, sometimes from quite a distance, and being able to get something that's close to a real time picture will greatly assist in the management, in particular, of the operational uh, operational business, but also enable us to uh, you know sweat our sweat our assets much. Uh, much better and ensure that we're uh, spending every penny as wisely as possible. So those are just two dimensions to it. Excellent. Thank you. And
0: we've got some questions over on Slido. So let's start with this one from Chris Francis. Um, Does all of your work ultimately mean machinery of government changes will be less needed?
5: it's, uh, it would be, I think, a mistake to uh, design the, the, the process of the uh, current system of government around what we can achieve in uh, shared services. Um, but what it certainly ought to mean is actually the machinery of government changes are easier uh, to, uh, to carry out. Um, it depends on the nature of the change. So, uh, you know, sometimes uh, when you shift whole departments around, for example, uh, the move of uh, of, of deck into bays—that's um, perhaps um, something that in future will be relatively straightforward. Um, you've got to set you've got to set your systems and structures upright to enable uh, the machinery of government to uh, to be to be moved around in that way. Um, what I think that we can also do is give government when it's taking the decisions about how it wants to set up the machinery again, much better data about what everyone is uh, is ultimately doing and how that can be brigaded to best effect. But um, will we see the end of machinery of government changes? Um, Gavin, you've probably got a chart that covers uh, that covers those over time as well. Of, of, of course we do. <laughs> I might have to dig
0: that out uh, for, for the end of this presentation. Um, we've got another question in the meantime uh, from William Wallace. Um, how does government shared services relate to the government digital service?
5: Yeah, good question. Um, and uh, actually one that we often ask ourselves. Um, so the focus of uh, GDS is very much on public facing services. Uh, the focus of government shared services is uh, very much on serving, uh, serving the public servants. Um, but uh, we uh, want to take what's worked well. Uh, for GDS and apply it uh, to ourselves. So, for example, um, in my mind, there's no reason why we should uh, set any different standards for usability and accessibility of internal services than those we uh, than we set for our public-facing ones. So, pulling through those uh, those standards internally is something that we've uh, moved to do uh, over the last couple of years. Um, clearly, there are differences because. Um, again, as I said, GDS, um, you know, the gov.uk platform operates in terms of a number of transactions that is so much higher than, uh, than what we have to deal with. That necessarily drives some differences, but um, there should be um, some some core similarities as well. And GDS are on our advisory groups and governance and so on.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And um, we've got a question from Matt. Things are improving, he says, but the user journey is terrible. The biggest cause of inefficiency in government. What's being done about that?
5: That's easy question. Well, I'm glad things are... uh, Yeah, yeah, I was expecting uh, something along those lines. Well, I'm glad that they're uh, improving. Um, And um, what I don't think that we can do is continue to promise people Jam tomorrow because uh, we've been promising that for some time. And it's no good us just saying... Uh, once you get on the cloud, it's all going to be okay. Um, that's not uh, that's not good enough. We need to improve our current systems as well. And um, actually, I don't know what system Matt's, uh, Matt's on, um, but for example, on the SOP system that um, five or six government departments uh, use, uh, we've made a lot of user improvements over the last couple of years um, around uh, enabling mobile applications, improving the interface, to um, make service requests, being able to see what's happening with your information, um, update your diversity data in one place rather than about five different places, which it uh, used to be, introduce live chat, uh, which many people prefer to, you know, phoning a call centre, and so on. There's a whole load of improvements that we've made, but uh, what we're not going to do is stop making those improvements while we wait for the next generation of systems to come online. Thank you. Um, We've got just another two minutes left. Any final questions,
0: please do submit them to Slido now. Uh, In the meantime, we've got a question from Kate Gimblett. With different platforms and information silos, can all information be migrated to a new platform?
5: um yeah i believe i believe so um i mean i talked at the start of my presentation about uh, the limited scope of the information that's currently held on erp systems in particular in the H- in, in the hr space it's not an in, at the moment an integrated platform that brings together for example people's learning records people's security uh certification um things uh, things like that you know people's pension Uh, record is on a different platform and so actually yes you can move the totality of people's information from an on-premise system onto uh, onto a cloud-based system but that's only part of the story the the real prize here is as I I said is the integration of different aspects of people's uh, data through the sort of integration layer that I talked about that will enable uh, both a better user experience for the person as I say they don't care whether it's um, HR or pensions or learning who are dealing with their inquiry, but also richer data for the business about uh, about the people, what they do, what their skills are, and so on than we've got at the moment. Brilliant. And in the remaining 20 page,
0: seconds. Um, remaining 20 seconds from Dan Klein, um, excellent point from you on the timeliness of data, he says, um, does GSS have a role in helping departments share data as shared services?
5: Yes, absolutely. And one of the things is we uh, sort of compile what that uh, we we compile key performance indicators um, around um, various aspects of financial data, for example, so that we can um, spot uh, where there are potential anomalies that departments might want to uh, address or identify where there's best practice. Um, And they change a surprising amount over time and you can sometimes attribute them to a specific change in process. So it's one of the ways that we can drive continuous improvement.
0: Excellent. Well, I think that takes us perfectly to time. Andy, thank you very much indeed.
5: Thanks, Gavin. Thanks, everyone.
0: Now, I'm conscious that, um, as ever, I'm the last thing standing between all of you and virtual drinks. You may have been enjoying actual drinks all the way through. I'm not here to judge. Um, so if you would uh, like to join us, and I very much hope you will, um, I'll put those details on the screen very shortly. And um, so I'm just going to share my screen now and run through a few final parish notices um, as well. So um, just to back up Andy's point. Yes, we do have a chart for that. And um, that's uh, our chart of uh, machinery of government changes, making and breaking, creating and dismantling government departments uh, down the years, uh, which you can obviously find on our website. Um, I'm very pleased that cooking along to data um has become a thing uh, recently. This is this is Glyn Jones and um, whose paella has moved from planning to implementation, which is very, very good to see. And I'm just going to put the. Uh, details for joining us um for drinks once we finish this and um, on screen so you can get that ready and um, in the meantime a few final parish notices and some thank yous let's start with the parish notices um first DataBytes is uh, just one of many virtual events the Institute um, has been running and will be running. You can find much more on our website, www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk. But I particularly want to draw your attention to um, one that we're doing Monday morning at 9.30am. I'll be in conversation with digital government rock star and revolutionary Audrey Tang, the Taiwanese Digital Minister, talking about their response to coronavirus and much else besides. Um, Second, we're doing a very short report into digital government and coronavirus and we'd like to understand, follows on quite nicely from Andy's uh, presentation, actually, which remote working tools different departments are using. So if you're a civil servant, we'd love you to spend a couple of minutes filling in our survey. You can find that on my Twitter, which is at Gavin Freeguard. And finally, some thank yous. First of all, um, thank you to all of you uh, for watching. And hopefully uh, any technical gremlins were ironed out and you were still able to enjoy it. A huge thank you to SAP for supporting tonight's event and uh, to Sean for presenting. DataBytes is only possible thanks to our partners, so a very big thank you to them. And finally, please join me in a huge thank you and virtual round of applause. I'll be looking down the camera to make sure you're all joining in um, for our wonderful speakers this evening, for really interesting presentations, and we're incredibly grateful to them. So thank you to them and uh, do come and toast them at virtual drinks. Thank you very much.